Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And uh, before we start the show, I want to remind you that there's a website, wealthformula.com. That's where you want to go if you want additional resources, if you want to sign up for any of our lists, including our accredited investor club. If that is something that you may be interested in, go to wealthformula.com and sign up. And there is an onboarding process involved, et cetera, but it's pretty easy to do. Also, I want to remind you that there is this online community, Wealth Formula Network, it's actually a course called Your Roadmap to Real Wealth, and it turns into a community a community that meets uh, online and also has a bi-weekly Zoom video conference. Very popular. People love it. Check that out. Maybe it's a good Christmas present for somebody. Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. I also think there is a link on the uh, wealthformula.com as well. But check that out. That could be a very nice uh, holiday gift for somebody. Um, as for today's show, boy, I will tell you, it's uh, it's a an economy right now full of fear. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett talks about being greedy when others are fearful. Well, <laughs> they're fearful, right? So uh, should we be greedy? Uh, I think the answer is yes or pretty soon because eventually these rates are going to continue to create distress in all financial markets. Of course, the stock market is already down, especially tech stocks are getting crushed. The real estate market, which is of course of interest to me, is frozen. I mean, there's very little trading in, in apartment buildings right now. Um, that's why our investor group has not acquired anything since May, because the worst part about where we are right now in this cycle really is uncertainty, right? Rates going up to more historical levels is not in and of itself problematic. You know, the problem relates to the unexpected speed of rate increases and the fact that we don't really know when it will end, right? So markets hate uncertainty. All markets hate uncertainty, and that's where we are right now. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Even with higher rates, Ultimately, we can go back to business as normal. Listen, people made tons of money when rates were uh, 8%, 9% too. That's not the issue. It's not about the rates themselves. It is about having some sort of benchmark to underwrite. And that goes for 
both buying and selling real estate, right? Like if you're selling real estate, you got to understand like what the price, the appropriate price to sell will be given mortgage rates. And the same thing goes on the buying end, but the Fed keeps moving those goalposts too quickly and the mortgage rates are rising with it just as, you know, usual. And it's hard, or I should say impossible to put any kind of interest rate down on a spreadsheet and underwrite. I mean, it's just, you know, it's unless you have something that has a significant amount of distress that's obviously discounted. Now, one thing you might be wondering is why is there no significant distress in the market, right? And I'm talking about the real estate market. The answer is largely that most buyers on floating rates purchased rate caps, but over time those will expire. And at that point, if the operator is not good and has not been, you know, raising rents quickly enough, they could see negative cash flow pretty quickly. Even good operators could see some problems, you know. We could start seeing opportunities, therefore, in distress as in next year. And we do, uh, I for one will be buying, and, uh, you know, certainly our, I would anticipate our group would be. But over the last few months, the cryptocurrency market also got hit hard. Uh, if you recall, for a while, it was beloved, even by teenagers, you know, they're all buying Dogecoin. They were all getting rich. And now cryptocurrency is a redheaded stepchild of asset classes. Uh, in, in crypto, down markets means absolutely destroyed. And that's where we are right now. Could it go lower? Maybe. But I'm a, a buyer of Bitcoin at this price. Bitcoin isn't going anywhere over the next several years. And I believe uh, will eventually be worth a lot more than it is today. It may be controversial to say, but investments in Bitcoin or Bitcoin mining right now actually might be some of the more obvious plays for savvy investors. Now, don't take this as investment advice, please. I don't, I don't, I don't need any, anybody trying to sue me or anything like that if they lose money. Uh, but that's, uh, that's just one guy's opinion. But again, there is a fear in the financial ecosystem. Investors, as much as they like the idea of buying low and selling high, usually do the opposite in these situations. But remember, be greedy when others are fearful, right? That's what Warren Buffett said. So cryptocurrency is down, but it is not dead. And that's the important thing to remember. People just stop talking about it when there is a bear market. But that's exactly why we should be talking about it on Wealth Formula Podcast, because the question is, really, is this something that you should potentially think about investing in right now? And my guest on this week's podcast is going to tell us why blockchain and cryptocurrency really, at the end of the day, are an inevitable part of the future, even for banks. And if that's the case, the question is, should you be investing? And, and that's what we'll talk about after these messages. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? 
but it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to wealthformulabanking.com. Again, that's wealthformulabanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Omid Malikan. He is the explainer-in-chief of blockchain technology. He's an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, where he lectures on blockchain and crypto. Omid, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, I should also mention you just have you have a new book, Rearchitecturing Trust, uh, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money Markets and Platforms, which we'll get in as well. But uh, just so people have uh, some foundation. Well, first of all, I mean, you're a you're a professor over at Columbia. Um, how how did you get interested or, uh, you know, turned on to this entire field of blockchain? Well, originally when I was younger at a college, I had a Wall Street and financial services background. So I was fairly familiar with how the plumbing of the world as currently designed worked when it came to things like money or financial markets. And then around uh, at this point, gosh, eight, nine years ago, I, w I was introduced by someone to Bitcoin and I was just uh, curious about it, um, not so much, not really from an investment angle, but from a, again, plumbing aspect, because there was just something about how this whole very confusing thing called the blockchain worked that was so different to me than, say, how Wall Street works. So originally as a hobbyist, I was just curious. Um, I spent some years learning about it. And then as it started to go more and more mainstream and finding new applications, um, that's when I decided to make a career out of it, tackling it in terms of writing books and teaching classes and whatnot. So at some point you were advising some banks on, on cryptocurrency policies and that sort of thing. Is that right? Can you, can that's you talk right. a little bit yeah. about yeah. that? Yeah, I, I spent three and a half years at City Ventures, which was, uh, is the, uh, VC arm of Citibank, but it also, um, used to have this dual role where it's supposed to help any part of the bank with innovation. So um, at the time, it was mostly educating my colleagues, which was actually great for me because as like one of the big global banks, City does everything. And it was a good opportunity for me to learn how, you know, like, how does banking work? How does the stock market work? Uh, how does money move around the world? Um, and I, I think the only way to really have an opinion on how blockchain and crypto might potentially change things is you have to come at it from a place of understanding how the world works today. And that's, and I think that would be a good place to kind of um, you know, sort of take off in terms of your take on cryptocurrency. So what are the fundamental problems in the system, in the plumbing that we, uh, of the old guard, mm -hmm. that, that crypto potentially provides a solution for? 
The number one problem is that most of our systems today were designed a very long time ago, uh, long before there was the internet or even smartphones. And while a lot of it on the surface looks like it's digital and electronic, the architecture is still the same. So even if you use something like a PayPal, it's a little bit to make an analogy. If you remember the early days of digital video, right? it was like first we used to go, before digital, we used to go to Blockbuster yeah. and rent a VHS tape. Yeah. Then when digital came, you still go to Blockbuster, but now you're renting a DVD disc. Yeah. So it was a little better, but it took some years for people to be like, wait a minute, now that the movies are digital, why can't we just stream it? over the internet and that really led to like the transformation of media right so i think of um think of blockchain is similar like so much of our banking system today is is really like dvd discs you know just the fact that anybody who's had to send a wire as like anybody who's had to do a deal um you know certainly cross borders like there's something kind of absurd about you got to fill out a form and then depending on whether it's like a, a banking hours or not that right, might impact right. whether your, your, your money gets there today or, you know, three days from now. And it's like, wait, it's the year 2022. I can right. send a picture <laughs> to anyone anywhere. Instantly. You're not shipping over gold or something like that. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, and this is one of the things like just payments. Like there are many places, even in America where you can FedEx someone a box of cash yeah. overnight, but you can't send them a wire overnight. So, um, the way I think about blockchain is like it is the financial system we would build if we start with the assumption that, hey, everything's global, everything's 24-7, most people have internet access or even a smartphone. What will we do different? A big element of this I know that also you've written about is trust. So trust is really at a premium today. So how can blockchain and cryptocurrency, I guess, uh, these technologies, how, how, you know, how can they restore trust in the system? It's a couple of ways. One is um, to make things be more built around communities than say around like a single corporation. Um, so if you think about like what's happened with social media, when we have these companies like Facebook and Twitter in charge, Originally, the vision of social media was like, oh, isn't this great? I get to connect with friends and family yeah. and share pictures and stuff. But then it turned into this massive surveillance capitalism infrastructure where now these platforms are trying to capture our attention as much as possible because they have to sell ads and make money. Um, so that's just one summary of it. But you know, the blockchain thing is, is very confusing. So if your listeners are confused, then they should not be deterred. I actually start every teaching semester by telling my students that I've spent years being confused about this stuff so they don't have to be. Yeah. But the things that I think are important to note about it is that, um, one, everything's community-oriented. Two, there's a lot more transparency. Three, a lot of things are programmable. So instead of appointing fallible people to decide things like how much money is okay to lend someone, um, if you use code and then cryptography, you just get much more predictable outcomes. And I know that sounds a little funny to some people when I say, it, cause they're like, Oh, crypto is just chaos. And every day some coins crashing and something's happening. 
that's true enough, but that that really is not a reflection of the underlying technology. That's just a messy sausage making of building a new and different kind of financial system. And what you referred to, right, uh, this these uh, digital instructions essentially is what's known as a smart contract, right? Isn't that that's that that's a concept? That's right, and it, it's a bit of a poor terminology because a smart contract is definitely not the blockchain version of a legal contract. A smart contract is just some kind of a financial transaction, which could be as simple as I send you a hundred bucks, but there, you can tie conditions to it. So it could be, I sent you a hundred bucks. If a deal closed, if you transferred something to me, uh, if it's Tuesday, if a certain sports team won, whatever. But the important thing is that you know, we, most of the economy runs on these kind of conditional transactions and payments. You know, if this happens, then do that. And that might be pay money, transfer title, whatever. Yeah. In, the, in the traditional setting, we usually put like a company or an escrow agent or a clerk or a courthouse or something in charge of executing this, mm -hmm. um, which has its drawbacks. With smart contracts, you can literally write uh, two or three lines of code and because it's executed using this decentralized infrastructure, the code is always going to do exactly what the instructions say. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm curious uh, with your perspective, um, having worked with banks, uh, particularly Citibank, and I'm assuming some of the others, um, as you, you know, kind of have your opinions and the banks were listening to you, there was an evolution, right? I mean, there ha there has been sort there was a lot of pushback for obvious reasons um, by banks who are probably concerned uh, having existential concerns about you know whether or not they will be needed in the long run um, to ultimately uh, turning around and and actually working with cryptocurrency in certain mm -hmm. you know areas. I mean, Jamie Dimon's, I guess. Probably the best example of that being with Chase, and now Chase is pretty involved in blockchain. Can you talk about uh, you know that perspective initially, and and why you think it has evolved and where we are now? Yes, a lot of the original crypto ethos was this uh, sort of libertarian utopian, you know, tear down the institutions and every individual will hold all their assets in custody of themselves and not have to rely on intermediaries. Uh, the problem with that vision is that that's just not what most people want. Even historically, like if you go, and in the book, there's actually a lot of this kind of history. If you go back to the days where people relied on things like gold coins for money, uh, and, and you could just have like a bag of gold coins, that was all your money. Most people chose not to do that. Most people still chose to go to some kind of bank or money changer or even a goldsmith to protect their assets. Um, and there are good reasons for that, right? Like they're professionals, they have security. You don't want to worry about losing all your money or just being kidnapped or something. And so crypto originally also had this kind of uh, go it alone type of ethos, but increasingly that's turned out not to be what most people want. And ultimately, if you want your technology or your currency or whatever to go mainstream, you have to accommodate what most people want. And most people want the help of some kind of a trusted, probably regulated financial institution in doing things like protecting their valuables. So whereas originally there was this like crypto was going to take down the banks and the banks were going to 
poo-poo crypto, increasingly they realize that they need to um, figure out how to work together. Mm-hmm. And and how is that? How has that been implemented so far with big banks? The, the big banks have been slow to do anything more than experiments and proof of concepts. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is as the, among the world's most regulated uh, institutions, it's just hard for them to do too much with crypto yet. A lot of times the regulators just won't let them. Um, two is the big banks are just not known for their tech savviness. Three, there are aspects of this technology that will someday replace what the big, a lot of what the big banks do today. Um, that doesn't mean we won't need banks. It just means we'll need different banks. Um, and you know, this history of technological innovation is that a lot of incumbents are hesitant to embrace that kind of change. Um, so there's an open question now. I mean, I'm certain that the future of crypto is most people will access it through some kind of a financial institution, could be a bank, could be a fintech. But the open question now is like, is that financial institution a JP Morgan or city like institution? Is it a more modern fintech like a PayPal or Square? Is it more a crypto native startup like a Coinbase? Or is it possibly some company that hasn't even been launched yet because it's still too soon? So uh, what's interesting to me, and I've always kind of thought there's this um, tug of war between crypto, uh, particularly Bitcoin purists, and, um, you know, and this desire to stay outside of the system. But in many ways, what has made it grow and what has given it even the market cap that it has today is is really because of its implementation into mainstream um, platforms and, and exposure to people and easier use. And so to your point, I think the, the question is like, are banks understanding that and are they, uh, what do you think that the outcome would be in terms to, in terms of trying to cater to people's desire for that, um, you know, that kind of technology, but still providing some level of ease of use, which is, I think, one of the problems with cryptocurrency. It, it absolutely is one of the biggest problems. And we've seen developments like when PayPal and Robinhood let people buy or trade crypto through them the same way they would stocks that just onboarded a lot of new investors or users who otherwise may not want to go through the trouble of doing it the crypto purest way. Um, and where this, this is, this really rubber is really hitting the road is with institutions. Cause as you know, institutions control the vast majority of the world's capital, whether we're talking about pension funds, insurance companies, hedge funds, et cetera. And, um, institutions often by law are not allowed to go it alone. So if you are, you know, if you and I, uh, want to own a little bit of Bitcoin, we can do what we call self custody. We have our own wallet. We control the, the, the private key for yeah. it and that's fine. Um, but, uh, a, a, a pension fund is legally not allowed to do that. I mean, who would do it, right? Like we can't have the CFO or one employee control all the money, right? <laughs> yeah, right? So they have to, they have to rely on a custodian and that custodian is going to be a bank or some kind of a bank like institution. So the, the one thing I think a lot of the 
crypto or Bitcoin purists got wrong is on the one hand, they wanted you know, Wall Street and Wall Street type firms have nothing to do with this world. On the other hand, they wanted to have their coin go up in value. Right, so right, right. It's not going to go up in value if the vast majority of the world's capital is mechanically not able to access it. That's right. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, decentralized finance, also known as mm. DeFi. Um, where are we with this technology? And, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, part of what your book is about is re-architecturing trust. And I'm curious um, how, how that pertains to decentralized finance. So I, I love DeFi. It is one of my just favorite areas because there's some real ex interesting experimentation and innovation going on there. You know, finance is not an industry knowing for like inventing brand new things in the way that say like tech does. Uh, but in DeFi, there are certain things that are possible because of the unique features of crypto and blockchain that I'll get to in a second. So it's fascinating to watch. Um, a lot of it does end badly, but yeah. to me, that's the birth of anything new and transformative. Like I'm sure if you go back to the early days of the auto industry, there was a lot of companies that failed and a lot of ideas that now we look back and be like, well, that was never going to work. That sounds right. crazy, but sure. they didn't know that back then. Someone had to try it. Um, so we're currently in that experimentation phase with DeFi. The things that really excite me about DeFi is if set aside crypto for a second, go ask any finance nerd or professor or someone who really knows like the history of the financial system and say, well, what are the things that improve trust in financial services? Uh, they probably tell you one of the most important things is transparency. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they will probably say another one of the most important things is like whatever you can do to diminish what we call counterparty risk or settlement risk. That, that's just a, a fancy way of saying like if people just did what they promised they would do. So if I'm buying something from you, right, if I deliver the money like I'm supposed to, and if you deliver the good like you're supposed to, then that makes for a better financial system. The problems usually happens like in 2008 with the financial crisis where People can't live up to their promises for whatever reason. And the things that I think are cool within DeFi is there are solutions that um, are similar to what people are used to today. There are bank-like solutions that we don't, they're not banks, we call them protocols because they're decentralized, but they're places where like some people deposit some coin to earn interest and other people borrow it to do something. Uh, there are exchanges that are like the New York Stock Exchange or even like a Coinbase. But instead of the company facilitating between buyer and seller, you just have code doing it. Uh, and with the things that are remarkable to me about it is one, the whole thing is transparent. Mm -hmm. So with these decentralized banks, if you and I wanted to right now, we could go to a website where we would know more about their financial health or just like the situation of their balance sheet than Jamie Dimon can ever know about JP Morgan. That, that's because the traditional financial system, the systems are very old. A lot of times they don't talk to each other. There's a lot of reconciliation. DeFi doesn't have these problems. So to the extent that there are things that matter, like, oh, we want to make sure this bank is not lending too much. With DeFi, you can just go and look and confirm. And then because you have these aforementioned smart contracts that are facilitating between lender and borrower or buyer and seller, you just have a lot more counterparty risk. So despite crypto's reputation as being this like crazy wild west um, ecosystem, some of which is well-deserved, 
there are fundamental tenets of DeFi that I look at and I make the case in the book that project forward five, 10 years when it's become a lot more mature and it will actually be safer than what we have from Wall Street today. Yeah. Um, I'm curious though on what, you know, the other part of the DeFi question is that uh, oftentimes they seem to be built on fairly volatile and arguably centralized um, uh, blockchains. I mean, I think if you look at this example of what happened with, uh, I think it was Terra Luna and that ecosystem basically had some DeFi built on in that ecosystem, but ultimately ended up failing miserably because, you know, in a way uh, the founder of Terra Luna, you know, had this centralized control and, um, and, and that ended up in a very bad outcome. So is that just part of being in this startup phase in this, you know, uh, the, you know, pets.com in the nineties kind of thing, or <laughs> is that, what's that all about? A, a lot of it is that. And unfortunately within my industry, there is this tendency to have these like cults of personality and these individuals that people think can do no wrong. I mean, just as you and I are talking today, just in the last 24 hours, it's come out that uh, one of the most prominent people in crypto today, Sam Bankman-Fried, at his exchange, FTX, has done some terrible things. We don't oh. even know what they've done. But, um, we know that they've done things with client coins that they should not have. And this is not DeFi, mind you. Like Exchanges like Coinbase and FTX are very much of the traditional world. They just happen to deal with crypto. Um, and, and part of this issue here is that um, people, institutions, everyone trusted people like the founder of um, Terra Luna or even this uh, FTX uh, founder too much. So that goes back to that question of um, trust and uh, crypto keeps sort of having to like relearn the lessons the hard way. My hope is that that is all part of building up resilience and shaking out the bad actors and, and learning the real first principles um, even within some of the other DeFi projects, like there's still things that happen that I just shake my head at. And I'm like, well, that's not going to end well, but they issue a coin and it goes up and some of these people are making money. So, um, they, they sort of like suspend the disbelief and then the bear market happens and everything blows up. Um, it's, it's interesting. I didn't know about the FTX thing because that's kind of, that is a, that is a potential to be a really big problem. I mean, right. Like, cause he, 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 um, he helped to bail out a number of the companies that got into trouble last time, I think, including BlockFi, uh, who's, who's, a yeah. starter that, uh, who's, a founder was interviewed on the show as well. Um, and so that's the problem I think is we've got, you know, this ecosystem built on the backs of shady characters, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and this, um, you know, the, even by crypto standards, this FTX story is just—it's big. Hard, yeah. it, it's big, and it's—it's it's yeah. hard to believe because uh, people like um, the Doquan, the founder of Terra that you yeah. mentioned earlier, right? Yeah. Like, he—he was wrong. He was really wrong, but he wasn't disingenuous. I don't think he was like he wasn't. Yeah, and people call call that whole thing a Ponzi, but. To me, a Ponzi is based on a lie. He actually told you exactly what he was doing the whole time. He just thought it would work, and it didn't. So he was arrogant. Right. Um, and then 
people like um, like even the block fives of the world, they just got a little carried away or they had they didn't have proper risk management and all that. What's crazy about this FTX story is here you have someone who just a couple of weeks ago is going out trying to take a leadership position on the importance for crypto to be regulated, uh, is very active in Washington, working with senators to pass legislation, was one of the top donors to the last few election cycles. And while he's out publicly doing this, it turns out that we still don't know exactly what his firm did, but we know that the client deposits are not there. They're not all there, which is a big no-no. Because unlike uh, BlockFi, you know, the FTX was not supposed to be touching client coins or laying them out. So there's almost like a, I hate to use this word, but there's like a psychopath element here that, that you turned out to be the exact opposite of the person you went out of your way to convince us that yeah. you were. Yeah. And, and, it, and he's a very clearly a bright fellow. So then the question is, how did you ever think you could possibly get away with that? You know what people say about Bernie Madoff? Like, obviously, it was going to blow up at some point. Yeah. That's the FTX story, at least 24 hours into it. Wow. that's uh, It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And certainly, it'll be, uh, by the time listeners listen to this show, you'll you'll know more about it if you're following cryptocurrency at all. But I did I did wonder why everything plummeted <laughs> last night. <laughs> <laughs> but that explains that. Um, speaking of plummeting, um, there, there's, there's this issue. There's two things that I think that people sometimes, um, don't extricate. And one is technology and one is cryptocurrency as an investment of what making money off of it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. we've focused primarily on the, the software element of this, but why, in your mind, uh, is is cryptocurrency so volatile still in terms of value? Two reasons. One, in because it's so new, we still have no way to try to put a valuation on anything. But as you know, in any asset class, there are some generally agreed upon valuation metrics, like a price-to-earnings ratio, a cap rate, sure. um, etc., Nobody has any clue what those would be in crypto and different cryptos do very different things. So they might require different valuation metrics. And, and it's not like, you know, PEs or cap rates are perfect, but any investor knows they give you some kind of a grounding, like, okay, this price is too high or too low. So that's number one. And I think in time, smart people will figure out um, valuation metrics that sort of become generally accepted. Number two because blockchain technology as financial infrastructure is so much more efficient than, you know, say like the New York Stock Exchange, it allows for any project to have a token or a coin that starts trading right away, even before the project actually has a product or a solution. Yeah. And this is both great and terrible. Uh, it's great because it allows founders to raise money sooner than they might otherwise and without having to go through like the usual time-consuming process of like, I got to go convince a bunch of VCs or something. On the other hand, think about a situation where if I were to open a restaurant today and I issued shares that traded from my restaurant even before I opened doors, that those shares would have to be crazy volatile because like the distribution of potential outcomes from me being the next McDonald's to this going out of business in a month, is it's all fair game. So 
you know, if I get a, my liquor license, then the shares might triple because that's going to really impact my revenue. But then if I get a bad review in the, in the local paper, my shares may fall significantly because for a new restaurant, that's really bad. Eventually, as that restaurant mature, matures, then news on any given day won't matter that much. So I think because crypto affords any project liquidity and price discovery from day one, you're bound to see a lot more volatility. And I think every startup is like that. It's just startups in the traditional world don't have the shares trading right away. So you just don't see the volatility. Yeah, I mean, um, and my my take has always been that you've really got two, uh, you've got two different things in Bitcoin and then everything else, right? So Bitcoin is like digital gold um, yeah. and everything else is a startup software company. Pretty much similar. The, the one difference is ultimately everything in crypto revolves around the ability to achieve some kind of sustainable network effects. So I think Bitcoin, we can say, is there. Like there's enough people all over the world that believe in it. The price might go up, the price might go down, but it's not going to like disappear next week. Um, some of the other, a few other projects like Ethereum, uh, uh, also I would say there. And then there are all these applications, maybe a very small handful of them are there. But for everything else, it's like, yes, software is a good way to think of it, but ultimately it has to be software that a community buys into and, and produces the capital, financial, labor, whatever, to sustain it and sustain its network effects. That's always a big if. It's a very hard thing to do. Uh, which is why I agree with the general sentiment a lot of people have that the vast majority of coins that exist today are probably not going to make it in the long run. Just uh, going back to your book, Rearchitecturing Trust, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms. Uh, first of all, it's available everywhere, I assume. Um, yes. Easy to get. Amazon, the usual players. Um, so, when you talk about re-architecturing trust and the curse of history, what's the curse of history? The curse of history is an idea that I invented that the more established any trust framework becomes, then the more somebody tries to take advantage of it or abuse it. So if you think about it in the context of money, um, one of the periods we're living through now is that you have these successful established currencies like the dollar, which made our central banks comfortable in printing more and more of it. And that's actually the history of money. Now, there have been many very successful currencies throughout the eons. None of them make it till today. And, and the main reason why is the, the issuer is like, oh, you know, everybody likes my money. Print a little bit more today and then a little bit more tomorrow. And oh, a war just broke out. I mean, or a pandemic. Hit. Um, or with financial services, right? Like one of the reasons that uh, problems like the, Madoff thing happen is because people are like, oh, well, Bernie Madoff, he's a good guy. He's been around forever. We can trust him. So it's, it's sort of this like cyclicality of trust that it, in the long run, it always becomes self-defeating. Um, but specifically in the examples I give in the book is how it plays out with money, with things like tech platforms, um, social media services, banking and financial services and a few other examples. And the key element to the crypto cure is the element of trust? Yes. The core thesis in the book is that if you look at the importance of trust historically, 
and how we have as a species constantly innovated in newer and better ways to achieve trust, then there are aspects of blockchain and crypto that almost make it inevitable in being adopted for trust building in different applications. Again, um, the book Rearchitecting Trust, uh, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money Markets and Platforms, Omid Malikan, thank you very much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. Thank you for having me. Be right back. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, I, I got to tell you, I still think, you know, it's so hard. I got to tell you, I'm, you, I'm not immune from this. When things are the way they are in the economy, it's very difficult not to operate out of fear and just pack away everything. And, and maybe you should, to a certain degree, have money set aside and wait for distress and that kind of thing. But also, make sure that you keep your eyes open because there are going to be opportunities. And frankly, there are opportunities already. You know, Bitcoin uh, was down to 15,000, 16,000. Now, could it go lower? Yeah, it absolutely could go lower. But, you know, for something that I anticipate to be over 100,000, 200,000 in the next few years, I think that's still a pretty darn good buy. But again, it's not financial advice. It's something to think about. Uh, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.